Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. The time is fulfilled. And in looking at uh, this title, you might be thinking, oh, what's he going to talk about? Well, uh, of course, this is in reference to what the Lord himself said when he began his ministry. If you recall, he said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. This is how Christ commenced his mission. He referred to his work as savior. He referred it to this fulfillment of time. Well, what time was he referring to when he talked about that? He was referring to <clears throat> prophetic time, particularly the time that the prophets had outlined where Christ and the timing was pinpointed as to when Christ would appear and when Christ would commence his mission. Otherwise, Christ was saying, I am now come in fulfillment of the prophetic time. And now that this prophetic time has been fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Of course, the primary prophecy that Christ had in mind here is the crown jewel of all prophecies about Christ. And that is the prophecy of the prophet Daniel. The prophecy that tells us when the Messiah would appear and it tells us of the glorious work that he would fulfill and that he would accomplish. And this is what Christ was referring to when he said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And like I said, this crown jewel of prophecy stands as the foremost of all the prophecies uh, that portray the coming of Christ, when he would be born, uh, what place he would be born, what he would do, and all the many different things. Daniel's one is really, really of great significance, especially to us as Seventh-day Adventists, because in the same prophecy of Daniel, it also goes on to tell us about uh, the 2300 days, and that's a very important prophecy for us as well, because it also has to do with uh, the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary and so on. But I want to focus particularly this evening on this prophecy. So let's refresh it in our minds together in Daniel 9 and verse 24. This is how it's recorded. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Here is this glorious list of all the things that the Messiah would do and accomplish within the space of 70 weeks. Those 70 prophetic weeks. 77s. Now, there is one aspect here before we go on, and I've heard this uh, a few times uh, spoken from off the front. Some people misunderstand the way this prophecy is worded, and they understand it this way, that uh, the 70 weeks were given to the Jews, and it says here it was determined upon Daniel's people, and of course that's the Jews, and it was the Jews' work to accomplish all these items within that time period. Now that is not what God intends for this prophecy at all. There is no Jew, there's no man on earth that can fulfill this. Only the Messiah. The only thing the Jews could do was usher in the coming Messiah, the seed that would come, that would accomplish all these wonderful and glorious things, the things that, has to, that have to do with the plan of salvation. And so I want to look in detail this evening at those six items. I want to list them there as a list. Six very significant and important items listed in this prophecy. I want to go through that this evening uh, a little bit in detail. That's what I want to do. Now, I want to keep in mind something also very, very significant that we don't want to miss as we go through that. 
when Daniel wrote this prophecy, all these things were yet to happen in the future. In other words, none of these things were in place when Daniel wrote that prophecy. Because the time of the fulfillment of all these things was to happen in the 70 weeks, which were determined upon his people, which was something that would be accomplished at a future point. Uh, this is very, very significant because it helps us to appreciate what Christ actually accomplished when he came. Daniel was looking forward to the time when transgression will be finished, when sins will be made an end of, when reconciliation will be made, when everlasting righteousness will be brought in. All these things Daniel was looking forward to, and not only Daniel, of course, all the prophets that prophesied and wrote. But this list is quite significant and it's quite extensive. And uh, of course, when Christ came to earth, he confirmed after his resurrection that his mission was a success. Mission accomplished. And remember the story when he was walking one day uh, with the two disciples recorded there in Luke 24, <coughs> verse 44, down to 47. It says, and he said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Of course, one of the prophets that wrote concerning him was Daniel. And through that walk, Christ had this, this wonderful Bible study of recounting all these different things that the prophets and, and the different writers of the scriptures had prophesied concerning him. He says these things have been fulfilled. That he came and who fulfilled these. And reading on, it says, Then opened he their understanding, that they might understand the scriptures, and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning... Oh, I'm sorry, where are we? Yeah. Sorry. Okay. The rest of the verse says, uh, beginning at uh, Jerusalem. Very, very significant point that in going through, it's there, oh, thank you, it's there. Uh, in going through this, Christ, what he indicated here is that the preaching of repentance and remission of sins had to do with him fulfilling these specifications of prophecy, particularly the prophecy of Daniel 9. We're going to see the impact of that hopefully at the end of the study. But this is a very significant concluding statement that Christ makes. He says, because I've come and I've fulfilled all these things, like the prophets and the law of Moses said, and the Psalms, and all the different aspects of prophecy, now some there is, this has an impact on the preaching of repentance of sins among all nations, repentance and remissions of sins. So how does that all work? We want to examine that prophecy, like I said, in detail, and hopefully that will give us a fresh appreciation of the work that Christ has accomplished for us. Christ came, of course, as the last Adam, as the Messiah, the prince of his people. Daniel's people, the Jews, not just them, of course, but all those who will believe. And uh, he came to fulfill all these things. Another point I want to also emphasize that is of importance is that all these things that were spoken of, those six items, they are one package. In other words, they were either all fulfilled or they were not. Christ didn't come and fulfill two items and the rest are not yet. All the things that were spoken there, all six of them were to be fulfilled within the 70 weeks. So if Christ fulfilled one, that means he had to have fulfilled all. They all stand or fall together. And that's important to keep in mind as well as we go along. Hopefully we'll see that. And so let's look at that in detail. We'll look at the first one. First one is uh, that Daniel said 
that he would finish, within the 70 weeks, he would finish the transgression. That's a very interesting expression. Of course, this was fulfilled in Christ in the prophecy that we're very familiar with in Isaiah 53. It tells us, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. He was wounded for our transgressions. When was Christ wounded for our transgressions? Of course, when he came on earth and died. Now, sometimes uh, the way the prophecy is worded, because it's written in the past tense, sometimes uh, that can throw people off. and say, well, Isaiah says he was wounded. That's in the past tense. But when Isaiah was writing this, that event was yet future, was still to happen. So in other words, as Isaiah was shown that prophecy, in the prophecy, whatever he would have seen, whatever was revealed to him, he was relaying that which he saw. And this is how he words it. And so many times in the scriptures, prophecy is worded in the past language. That does not mean it has happened in the past. It means that's what was shown to the prophet. And he's, as he looked at Christ, he says, oh, he was wounded. And he was taken. And the next verse says it as well. Let's just read that. In verse 8, it says, he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. When did all these things happen? When Christ came in the future. So as Isaiah was, it was, as these things were revealed to Isaiah in a vision or however it was that God revealed it to him. And as he saw that, that's what he wrote. He wrote down what he saw, what had happened to Christ. But all these things were yet to happen in the future. So don't, don't let the wording of the prophecy, because it's written in the past tense, throw you off and think it happened back then. Uh, there was only one time when Christ was led from prison. There was only one time when Christ was cut off, when he died, obviously, on the cross. And so uh, he finished the transgression that way. He bore, it says, he wounded for our transgressions. He bore our iniquities. There's a beautiful verse in Hebrews that essentially says the same thing. And this one is a, is, is a heavy verse, but it's a beautiful verse. Let's, let's look at it together. Hebrews 9 and verse 15. It says, and for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. don't know uh, how much uh, you pondered that verse, but it's a very, very significant verse. It tells us it was through one thing that Christ became this mediator. It was through death. That's the time when he bore our Iniquities. And not only us, it also says it was at that time that there was also redemption for the transgressions that were under the first testament. What's that referring to? What are the transgressions that were under the first testament? All the sins that were committed in the first covenant, in the old covenant, before the cross. In other words, the coming of Christ dealt with all the sins that were accumulating all through the Old Testament. All through the Old Testament period, the sins of the people were not dealt with. Only when Christ came were they dealt with, because at his coming is when he would make, is when he would finish the transgression. Up until he came, transgression was not yet finished. Now someone might ask the question, well, hold on a minute. What, what are you trying to say? Uh, that the people in the Old Testament were not forgiven? No, of course they were forgiven based on the promise that would come. But their sin was not dealt with. It was still outstanding. And it was only dealt with 
when Christ came to finish the transgression. That's why the scripture tells us that without blood, there is no remission of sins. When was the blood shed? When Christ came on Calvary. And that's why, what's the point of Paul here? He says, that's when he dealt with all these sins that for 4,000 years have been accumulating and building up. Now Christ has finally dealt with them. He has finished the transgression. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord for that. The next expression, the next point that Daniel says is that he would make an end of sins. It's essentially saying the same thing in different words, finishing the transgression and making an end of sins. It's, it's kind of like repeating it for emphasis because this is one of the major things that Christ came to deal with when he came as a man, as a savior for mankind. He came to make an end of sins. You remember, of course, the, the picture there tells us uh, the, the story when John the Baptist saw Christ in John 1, 29, says, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He says, Here it is. Look at him. You can see him. It also tells us something very important, brothers and sisters, that up until that time, the sin of the world was not taken away. Correct? John is saying, here it is. Here is what we've all been looking for. The time when sin will be taken away. It's the Lamb of God that's going to take away the sin of the world. He's here. He is the fulfillment of these prophecies. You see, we don't realize sometimes the import and the impact of the coming of Christ. Hopefully, tonight, I will... Uh, you know, hopefully be able by God's grace to paint it in a light that we can appreciate it in a fresh way. That's, that's the purpose of, of the study this evening. That Christ came to finish and make an end of sins, to take away the sin of the world when he came as a man. Peter refers to that as well. In 1 Peter 2.24, he says, Who in his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. That we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. Christ bore our sins in his own body. That's why the scripture says he condemned sin where? In the flesh. Question. Was sin ever condemned in the flesh before that? Never. Never was there seen one like Christ. He's the only one who came and he fully condemned sin in the flesh. And he bore our sins, as it says here, in his own body on the tree. And thereby he made an end of sins. All sins. Praise the Lord. It was in our flesh that he accomplished that task. That was, that's why it was so important. John says, listen, this is, this is the Lamb of God. You know, two of his disciples were standing there. They heard that. So they went off after Christ and said, okay, let's, let's follow this man. And they said, Lord, where, where do you live? We want to come and, and listen to some more. And they, of course, became uh, his disciples, as we, as we know very well. Condemning sin in the flesh. This was done for all mankind. Christ bore our sins. Now, there's an evidence for this. And the book of Hebrews is a beautiful epistle that pinpoints much of the mechanics and details of what uh, all this is about. I'll just look at a couple of verses here. It says in Hebrews chapter 9 <clears throat> and verse 26, But now once in the end of the world has he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You know, Christ only had to do that once. His sacrifice is so sufficient, is all-reaching. 
it only once had to be offered and it dealt with all sin. And it says here, the expression is very similar to Daniel's. It says to put away sin. And how Daniel said it was to make an end of sins. This was the hope, brothers and sisters, of all the ages. For 4,000 years, believers looked forward to the time when sin would be made an end of. Daniel dreamed about that time. Isaiah wrote about that time and looked forward to it. It came when John the Baptist said, here he is. This is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Hebrews chapter 10 goes on, verse 12. It says, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins for forever, sat down on the right hand of God. This, uh, the picture Paul is painting here is in direct contrast to the ongoing sacrifices in the old covenant that went on and on and on, day in and day out, year in and year out. Now he's contrasting that. He says, listen, this man, by one sacrifice, he dealt with the sin problem forever. And now he's up sitting on the right hand of God. And a couple of verses later, he says, verse 18, now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. I want you to think about that for a minute. He says, where there is remission of these, he's referring to sins here, where there is remission, there is no more offering for sin. That's why Christ died once and he, had, he does not need to die anymore because he completely remitted all sins. You with me? This is the whole point of this verse that Paul is saying here, but that point st stands in stark contrast with how things were going on before that. You see, remission for sins. There's someone might say, well, are you trying to say there was no remission for sins in the Old Testament? People were forgiven, but remission of sins in the Old Testament was only by promise. That is why there was always sacrifices, day in and day out. And there were sacrifices that were offered for the people, not just the individual sacrifices that if you sinned, you brought a lamb, but the in the ministration of the temple, morning and evening, the priest would offer a sacrifice on the behalf of the people. Why? Because there was no full remission of sins yet. And that sacrifice served as a prophecy, as a reminder of that one eternal sacrifice that was still coming in the future. And that's why Paul says, now, where remission of these is, there is no more sacrifice. In other words, where no remission of sins is, there is ongoing Sacrifices, you with me? That's his whole point that he's making here to magnify the sacrifice of Christ and what he has accomplished. So I want you to think about it this way. Because then someone will say, oh, this, this sounds a little bit strange, brother. He's saying, you know, in the Old Testament, uh, there wasn't complete remission of sins. That's, that's what Paul is saying, okay, not me. But I want you to think about it this way. If there was complete remission of sins in the Old Testament, then why did we need Jesus to come? Right? The fact that we needed Jesus to come is evidence that that system could not accomplish. Therefore, it was just a remedial system. It was given to pinpoint that which was to come. Now we have the Lord who has come and said the time is fulfilled. And this ties in directly to the third item that Daniel lists. And the third item in that list is he would make reconciliation for iniquity. As soon as we read that, it immediately means that up till that point, there was no reconciliation for iniquity. That's why the sins could not be fully remitted. 
That's why there had to be ongoing sacrifices. And of course, uh, in Corinthians, we're told, 2 Corinthians 5.19, to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Praise the Lord. When did that happen? When Christ came. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Perhaps we don't think about it this way or we don't realize that for 4,000 years, brothers and sisters, the world was not reconciled to God. Do you realize that? It happened when Christ came to make a reconciliation for iniquity. It's when he took sins. All these things that Daniel lists, actually, they build on each other. It's almost like they're consecutive. He made an end of sin and transgression, and now he makes reconciliation. He can reconcile. He, He dealt with the sin problem. Now he reconciles God to mankind because he came as one of us and condemned sin in our flesh and therefore made reconciliation between God and fallen mankind. That had never, ever happened before, right? Now, that's what I'm saying. Sometimes we don't think of it this way, but when we do, when I did, when it dawned on me, I was like, wow, all of a sudden, what Christ accomplished took on such a great and glorious magnitude. It was just beautiful. It's kind of like uh, the Apostle Paul says, you know, uh, this verse that we quote a lot, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross. And when Paul talks about the cross, of course, he talks not just about the event of the death of Christ. He talks about the whole package of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. Christ, brothers and sisters, accomplished the hope of all the ages when he came to earth. He reconciled God to man. Rather, he reconciled the world to God, as it says in the verse. He brought reconciliation. Colossians says the same thing. Colossians 1, 20 and 21. And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Yet now has he reconciled. What is the now that Paul is referring to here? When Christ came and fulfilled what Daniel said he would do. The now here stands in contrast to that before. He says, now we have this accomplishment. Now it's a reality. Praise God for that. That has happened for us, brothers and sisters. And not only this world. It says, not only things in earth, but things in heaven. What is it that's in heaven that's he referring to? Do you realize that the reconciliation that Christ accomplished not only secured mankind, but it also secured even the angels that had not fallen. That is their eternal security against sin because they still have freedom of choice, right? That's why through the sacrifice of Christ, what he did, what he accomplished, he dealt with the sin problem, not only benefiting mankind, but also the entire universe reconciling it and gluing it together so that it is safe. That's the glorious work that Christ accomplished when he came on earth. And of course, many verses talk about that. Tonight we're just looking at a sample, hopefully so we can paint a glorious picture that uplifts Christ. Romans 5.10 For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled we shall be saved by his Life. Here, Paul spells it out specifically. What is it that reconciled us to God? It was the death of Christ. 
It's when he died, when he bore our sins in that tree, when he dealt with the sin problem, he made reconciliation because brothers and sisters, he died as one of us. He was a human being, not only a human being, he was the son of God, but he was a human being. He was the last Adam. And as the last Adam, he dealt with sin and condemned it in the flesh. I pray that the spirit will just make light bulbs go off in your minds that we, we can appreciate and understand what Christ has really accomplished. You see, we talk about it a lot. We, we converse about it a lot to the point that it almost becomes, you know, phrases, cliches, words that we use. I hope that we can see it for the import that it is. And being reconciled to God, Paul says now, we shall be saved how? By his life. And that ties into the next point, point number four in the prophecy, as we shall see in a minute. But we shall be saved by his life. This is the promise of redemption. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, sin brought in death. The antidote for death is what? Life. And where can you get life from? From a life source. The life that God gave Adam, he lost it. The dying, that when we are born our first birth, we inherit the dying life of Adam. That's why we need a new birth. We need a new birth that provides us with a new source of life. That source of life is Christ. That's why it says he, we are saved by his life. Now that he has reconciled us to God by dying, now he can bestow on us his life, and that is what saves us. You cannot receive life from a law. You cannot receive life from doctrines. You cannot receive life from scriptural interpretations. You can only receive life from a person who can give life. The gospel, brothers and sisters, is a person. It is Christ. His life is what saves us. And this was the promise, you know, many times Paul says, it talks about it as the seed that should come. In many aspects, I'm just summarizing here quickly how he made reconciliation for iniquity. He talks about him in Galatians 3 as the seed that should come, that would come in the fullness of time and be born of a woman in order to redeem those that are under the law, to redeem us. Galatians 3 and 4. Christ accomplished that when he came. He was the seed that came. And he produces children, the fullness of the time. Like I said, this ties into the next point that Daniel says, and that is number four, that he would bring in everlasting righteousness. How did Christ bring in everlasting righteousness? It is his righteous life. That's how we're saved. We call it righteousness by faith. What do we receive when we receive righteousness? When we say righteousness by faith, we receive righteousness. How do we receive this righteousness? By receiving the righteous life of Christ. He brought in everlasting righteousness by his death and his, his resurrection. When he rose from the grave, he says, you know, uh, what did he say? That verse I'm thinking of. I am the resurrection and the life. Right? When he and his, this resurrection and the life is not only to him. This life he now shares when he told his disciples, because I live, you shall live also. You with me? That's how the sons of Adam, sons and daughters of Adam, could obtain everlasting righteousness if we desired it through this seed, through the life of Christ. Paul says it in Romans 3, 21 and 22. He says, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifest. I want to ask you a question. Think about that. Was the righteousness of God without the law manifest before? Paul says, what? 
Now it is manifest. In other words, it was not manifest before. Did anyone live a righteous life like Christ lived before? No. So Paul says, now we have Christ. Brothers and sisters, now we have this righteousness that the prophecies all talked about. Now this righteousness that doesn't come from the law, this living righteousness that you can see, that you can hear, that you can interact with, a living person has come and manifested this righteousness of God fully. He brought in everlasting righteousness. And it goes on to say, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So of course it's in harmony with the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. We now have the realization, brothers and sisters, of the promises of all the ages. Christ came and brought in this everlasting righteousness. A righteousness that was never, ever seen before. You realize that? It was never, ever seen before. Christ brought it in. And that's why the scripture says, you know, uh, John in John 1, he says, uh, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the father, full of what? Grace and truth. This was a revelation that this world had never seen before. That is the salvation plan, the fulfillment of what Daniel had said, that he would bring in this everlasting righteousness. And that's why the verse we read earlier, in Peter, it says, who in his own self bear our sins on the tree. And then it says that we should live unto righteousness. We live unto righteousness by receiving his very own life that he gives us. That's why in the prophecies as well, you remember, you're familiar with this verse in Jeremiah 3, uh, 23, verse 6. It says, in his day, Judah shall, shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is the name whereby he shall be called the Lord, our Righteousness. This is a prophecy of when Christ will become a man and would be our righteousness. The Lord, our righteousness. This is why Paul says as well in 1 Corinthians 1.30, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. When did that happen? When did Christ become one of us? When Isaiah prophesied about it, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That's why he is now unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. This is what Christ accomplished, brothers and sisters. Combine this verse with the one we just read earlier in Romans, which said at the end that we shall be saved by his life. It is his life that is our wisdom. It is his life that is our righteousness and our sanctification, and our redemption. That's what Christ came to accomplish. That's the glorious work of the Savior. Now, one time I was talking to someone, and, and uh, they, they made a comment that really, really puzzled me. They said, you know, everlasting righteousness has not yet come in. It's still to come in the future. Maybe because there's still sin in the world, or maybe because, I don't know what they were, but I just was really puzzled, and, and, and I gave that some thought, and I... And I came to the conclusion that I just cannot accept that statement. What more righteousness do you expect God to bring more than what Christ has accomplished? That actually indicates that the work of Christ was not complete. It was inferior. It was lacking in some righteousness that God will top up in the future. That's blasphemy. That says Christ has not accomplished or fulfilled the prophecy. 
That is a very, very serious problem. Now let's look at that a little bit more because when we talk about righteousness by faith, this is, you know, we, uh, we talk about 1888 and the message that the Lord brought and, and, and everybody likes to use the terminology righteousness by faith. But what is righteousness by faith? It is partaking of this everlasting righteousness that Christ brought in with his life. It is receiving the life of Christ by faith. It's not complicated. You don't need to read books and books and books on it and get confused. You know, when I was first introduced to 1888, I got so excited and got all these books. And after a while, the whole thing was a big muddle in my head. And, and people write long lists of what the whole, uh, you know, 1888 message was all about. Here it is quite simple and plain. It is the life of Christ in your soul. That is how you are made righteous. You don't need anything else. He brought in this everlasting righteousness. Let me read a couple of quotes here. In, in this context as well. This is from Bible Commentary Volume 4. Men will learn of the reconciliation for iniquity and of the everlasting righteousness which the Messiah has brought in through his sacrifice. The cross of Calvary is the great center. What a beautiful statement. The Messiah brought in this everlasting righteousness through his sacrifice. His cross is the great center. The cross of Christ, what he accomplished there, and like I said, that's the whole package. It's not just, you know, the cross, literally. It's, it's the whole package of his life, his death, and his resurrection. That's what the cross refers to. That is the great center of everything. This, of course, was what was promised all through the ages. Here's another one from Bible Echo. It says, The instant Adam yielded to Satan's temptation and did the very thing which God had said he should not do, Christ, the Son of God, stood between the living and the dead, saying, let the punishment fall on me. I will stand in man's place. Give him another trial. Praise God. And for 4,000 years, this promise sustained mankind. And they looked forward to this promise for the time when Christ would come and have the punishment fall on him. Of course, when did that punishment fall on him? When he came to bear our sins and to make an end of transgression and make reconciliation for iniquity that's the time when he stood in man's place and through the power of this promise the doom of humanity was averted until the time when christ would fulfill the promise and of course here's another one it says essentially the same thing in other words jesus came to bear the penalty of man's transgression to uphold and vindicate the mutability of the law of God and the rectitude of his government. He came to make an end of sin and to bring in everlasting righteousness. That's the hope of all the ages. Christ accomplished that when he came to this earth. And in doing so, he also accomplished the next thing that Daniel lists, which is number five. That is, he would seal up the vision and prophecy. How did Christ seal up the vision and prophecy? By fulfilling all the specifications that were listed in that prophecy, all the previous four items. He fulfilled them, each and every one of, a, one of them, and sealed it. You know what the seal of that prophecy is? It is the death and the resurrection of Christ. It is sealed with his blood. Mission accomplished. Or in other words, it is sealed with his life, because the blood is... Life, And this is exactly what he told those disciples on the way to Emmaus, that all things must be fulfilled which were written concerning me. They were fulfilled. And in fulfilling them, he sealed up the vision and prophecy. He made it sure. It is a done deal. 
Mission accomplished. Task completed. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Now this uh, brings us, of course, to the next one. Next item. After having sealed up the vision and prophecy. I'm going to come back to the sealing up the vision and prophecy in a little bit. Uh, but the next item, and that's the last one that Daniel lists, is the sixth one. What was it? Thank you. He would anoint the most holy. And of course, in anointing the most holy, if you look it up in different translations, the most holy here is referred to as the holy of holies or the most holy place. The work that Christ accomplished on earth would not just have an impact on earth, it would also have an impact in heaven. And having sealed the vision and the prophecy with his life, it also says he would sorry, anoint the most holy. And this is part of what Christ would accomplish within the space of how long? 70 weeks. That's what we're studying. Within the space of 70 weeks, he would do all these things and also anoint the most holy. Well, what's that referring to? The book of Hebrews tells us. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. What's another word for consecrated? Anointed. A new and living way that Christ anointed for us. He would anoint the most holy or the holy of holies. In other words, brothers and sisters, through the work and the accomplishment of what Christ did on earth, the heavenly sanctuary was anointed and was activated so that now we could access it by a new and living way. We can now enter into this place that was inaccessible to humanity before he made this new and living way. You realize that? This new and living way is now available because of what Christ has accomplished. All before that time, it was only promised that one day when he would come, he would make this new and living way. He consecrated the most holy. And he himself, of course, was consecrated as well. The beautiful thing about this verse, if you really ponder, I don't want to go too fast here. I want to be mindful of the time as well. If you really ponder this verse, it, you know, one time it really hit me. I thought, wow, we now have access to this sanctuary by this new and living way that for 4,000 years, no one could access. You realize that? Because the new and living way had not yet come. Because it was not yet consecrated. Because it's only consecrated by his death and life. Wow. If that really dawns on us, that's why. Unless I want to say, whoa, brother, you're really, really saying some outrageous things here. I'm just reading what the Bible says, right? We got to take what it says for what it says, brothers and sisters. Perhaps in our fear of accepting what it says, that's why we don't appreciate what Christ actually accomplished for the human race. Christ, when he came to this earth, brothers and sisters, he turned everything upside down. And we're still living like it's the downside up. You with me? He changed everything. And it's because he made this new and living way. That is why the old and dead way came to an end. What was the old and dead way? 
the earthly system of sanctuary and types and shadows and symbols that pointed to the new and living way that was coming. Once that new and living way came, no longer had we need for the old and dead way. Because the old and dead way gave us no access to this sanctuary. You realize that? Only the life of Christ and what he accomplished in fulfilling that. And of course, like I said, not only was the sanctuary anointed, he himself was anointed in Hebrews 1, 8 and 9. I think we're all familiar with this verse. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. When did this event take place? Okay, it's after his ascension. This event happened on the day of Pentecost, when Christ was anointed as the high priest of his people to function and work as the high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. As soon as that took place, when he was anointed, that anointing flowed down all the way down to earth, and we see the Acts 2 experience of the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down in a way that was never, ever witnessed before in the entire history of the world. Do you realize that? Because never before had sin been finished, had reconciliation been made, had the Most Holy been anointed. Never before had the work of salvation been completed. Now it is done, and the effects of that finished work were manifest in visible tokens, power and conversion, and all these things that we read about in the experience that happened at Pentecost. Brothers and sisters, this is the time we're living in. We're not living before, we're living in the after, we're living now. And of course, this anointing of Christ and Him anointing the Most Holy is what was pointed out in the type. Remember when God told Moses to erect the sanctuary? And then Moses was told that he would take the oil and he would go in and anoint the sanctuary and all the different items of furniture uh, to activate, to sanctify them or to activate them. And then he would also anoint Aaron as the high priest to work in the sanctuary. Christ now fulfilled all that. He anointed the most holy and he is anointed standing as our high priest. And so the promised Messiah has fulfilled all the specifications of what Daniel said he would accomplish. That's why this is one of the most important prophecies. This is like the, like I said, this is the crown jewel prophecy. Daniel 9.24 is a beautiful prophecy. It summarizes in a few short sentences, in six phrases, the work, the great work of redemption, of restoring mankind to God, reconciling man with God. I want to add another aspect to that, and that's in Daniel 9.27. And then, this is our closing one, so we're almost there. In Daniel 9, 27, it says, And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. Who's the he that's spoken of here? It is Christ. And which covenant would he confirm for one week? It is the new covenant. He would confirm that which he would bring in. And of course, he did that, that last night. And so this is why I list that as number seven that he would also confirm the Old Covenant. This is in Daniel 9.27. He confirmed the Old Covenant, of course. Sorry, he confirmed the New Covenant. He confirmed that New Covenant in a very beautiful setting, that last night with his disciples. Now, this confirmation of the New Covenant is of great, great significance because the New Covenant that was promised all that time now was coming into 
effect. And the effective ingredient of this new covenant is only one thing and one thing alone. The whole new covenant is all about one thing only. If you know what the new covenant is about and you have that one thing, that's it. What is that one thing that is the active ingredient of the new covenant? Jesus said it. I'm, I'm getting some puzzled looks here. I wonder, <laughs> minds are ticking. What's he talking about? Jesus said it in Luke 22 and verse 20. Likewise, also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. You know, I read this verse so many times, and it never hit me, that phrase right there in the middle, where Jesus said, the New Testament is where? And the blood is life. This is the active ingredient of the New Covenant. It is the life of the Son. The New Covenant is actually in His life. And He told His disciples symbolically, take drink of this cup. This represents my blood. In this blood is this new covenant. I give it to you. In my life that I have lived now, conquering sin, making an end of sin, and bringing in everlasting righteousness, this life now I'm giving to you is the new covenant. He confirmed the new covenant with many. And in confirming this new covenant, naturally the old one came to an end. We have this new one, this new and living way. And it never hit me before when I read that verse and I said, in my blood, I never noticed that before. In my life, the life of the Son. This life is a life where sin has been made an end of. It's a life that has reconciled mankind. It's a life that has everlasting righteousness. It's a life that is the seal of the promise of God. That it is no longer now a perhaps or a maybe. It is a done deal. It is a finished package. And this life is that final seal of the prophecy. That's how Christ sealed up the vision and prophecy. You know, many times uh, when people make, make pacts and they make a pact with blood, right? You're familiar with that? They, or they make a solemn oath or, or an agreement with blood. Christ has sealed that pact of the plan of salvation. That's why Paul says, we are saved by his life. It's really simple, isn't it? You know, we keep saying the same thing in different words. It keeps revolving around things. Everything revolves around one thing, the person and the life of Christ Jesus. That is the gospel. I'll close with this verse because it's beautiful in this context because it spells out exactly what we're talking about. In John 7, 38 and 39, Jesus says, He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Of course, Christ one day stood uh, up to say that, and it was at the last great day of the feast, right? And he stood up and he said, Whoever believes on me is going to receive this promise. What was Christ referring to? He was referring to the spirit. Another word for spirit is what? We found that earlier. I talked about that. Spirit is? Life. So Christ was saying, when you believe on me, there is going to be this reception of rivers of living water. And the next verse spells it out. It says, but this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Why was the Spirit not yet given? 
What is the glorification of Jesus? The glorification of Jesus, brothers and sisters, is this final seal of the fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel. The reason the Spirit was not yet given, because at this particular point, all the specifications of Daniel's prophecy were not yet fulfilled. But Christ was saying, here it is, it's at the doorstep. This is coming. If you believe on me, you're going to have rivers of water flow out of you. This Spirit you're going to receive is going to be like this abundant river. But it's not here yet, because I have yet to finish that final task, those few final things in the prophecy. This is the giving of the life of Christ in a way that was never, ever done before. You know, it's interesting, the verse says here that this was not yet given. This Holy Spirit was not yet given. Does that mean that the Holy Spirit was not present in the Old Testament? No, of course it was. God was working by Spirit through people, through prophets, through righteous men, all through the Old Testament. But what Christ came to give, the life that he lived, a life in which he condemned sin, he brought it to an end, he finished it, he reconciled it. That life was not yet here until he finished all that, went to heaven, and then he pours out this life. This is an advancement Something that was never, ever seen before, brothers and sisters. We have that. Daniel didn't have that. We have that. You realize that? Do we realize what we have? This is my challenge and this is my appeal to you. When Christ would accomplish this prophecy. And the evidence is when all this was done, he was glorified. You know when he was glorified? When he was anointed with the oil of gladness. And when he was glorified, he poured out this life on the day of Pentecost, down on his disciples. That, that vision and that prophecy, brothers and sisters, is sealed with an eternal divine seal. It's a done deal. It's an accomplished task. It's a life in which all these things are ours. And so the new covenant is simply, and yet gloriously, this life of the Son. A life in which all these things are done and packaged and given to us freely if we believe. Brothers and sisters, do we really believe? Do we really believe? That's the question. It sounds almost unbelievable. Do we really believe? Because brothers and sisters, you know, if we really believe, I really think things would be a lot different. A lot different. None of this uh, fighting and envying and issues and more issues and splits and this, this does not look like the life of Christ, does it? You know what I'm talking about? I want to challenge you. I want to challenge me, brothers and sisters. The new covenant is not about sitting and arguing about doctrines. The new covenant is about the life of the Son of God. That's all there is to the new covenant. Nothing more. You say, oh brother, but you're leaving out this and that. Isn't the life of Christ good enough for you? What more do you want than the life of Christ? We shall be saved by his life. I challenge you, brothers and sisters, to be in the new covenant. Jesus said, take, this is my blood. My, uh, the new covenant which is in my blood. That's my challenge. We understand what we talked about tonight? Does that make sense? I pray to God that the Holy Spirit will just magnify Christ in our minds through these feeble words that we could share tonight. If this has been accomplished, then praise God. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.